Hello, Unorthodox. This is your friend Anne from Elkins Park calling, and I just finished listening to the episode where Phil disclosed that he scooped his bagel. So for a lot of years, I've been scooping my bagel also, mostly to save the calories, but also acknowledging that it is a better ratio. However, my uncle reminded me of the tradition in our family when we grew up, and that was that my grandfather actually cut the bagels in thirds. So I have gone back to that tradition, and now not only do I have the right ratio and less bagel, I actually am not wasting as much food, and I have more bagels to use in the future. So there's an idea for Phil. Thanks for all you do. I love your podcast, but you already know that. This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by my co-hosts, Tablet Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick. Hello. And Tablet Editor-at-Large, Liel Leibowitz. Ahalan wasahalan. And it is Bat Mitzvah week at the Oppenheimer House. Clara becomes a Jewish woman this Shabbat. Uh, that's all you need for News of the Jews. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web. No. <laughs> <laughs> That's all you need to know in the Jewish sphere. Honestly, the joke's on you because this is kid three out of five. You're nowhere near out of the, out of the woods with this one. I do sometimes wonder, are they a little sick of us? Because we've had five either Simchat bots, like baby namings for girls or brisses. And now we're on to the B'nai Mitzvah. And I mean, at, I'm sure there are people in the pews who are like, Ganook, like enough already. Enough already, Oppenheimer. We'd like a Shabbat that's not about you. No, they like the kiddish that's sponsored by the Oppenheimers. It's, it's like they know that there's five five of them coming up. It's true, though we're pretty cheap, uh, I have to say. <laughs> like, we don't we don't get Yoshi the caterer, who does excellent work. And there have been several B'nai Mitzvah lately catered by Yoshi. Sorry, uh, Yoshi. Though, um, Leo, you said you're bringing a big bottle of something this Saturday, right? I will upgrade this kiddish. I will take this kiddish okay. to, to the next level. We'll be so drunk that we can't even recognize the name of Clara when it is shouted so out. So this is great because I feel like we have been part. I was at your son David's bris at Becky in New Haven. We, Where it should be said, Josh Cross whipped out his recorder and got tape of the bris. Because on, on Rosh Hashanah, nonetheless. On a holiday. On Rosh Hashanah day two. Yeah. Look, we can't control ourselves. Leo, I think you've been, you have a really strong track record. Obviously, uh, Mark, your family simchas are all about us. Um, Leo, what's yeah. your track record I, of bat mitzvah? I, I am now, this will be three for three. I have not missed a bat mitzvah. I did Rebecca, I did Elizabeth, and now we're now doing Now you're Clara. here for Clara this weekend. It's amazing. I will be there also with baby Edith. That's some real like eight years down the line podcast world. <laughs> My child yeah. is going to your child's bat mitzvah. When we first started <laughs> podcasting, there was no Edith. There was no Ben. I mean, there was Ben, but he wasn't Mr. Stephanie Butnick. That's true. There was no David. There was there was like schnitzel, Anna was as they Anna say. was like two. We are we are a three person Jewish continuity machine. <laughs> <laughs> just just give us money and we will continue the Jews single handedly. <sighs> I am so moved to think that you might bring Edith to the children's service at eleven a.m. Right. I'm gonna stop like pimping for my shul. Before we return to the question of this weekend, because we have a very important ethical question, we have a real Musar question to put to the J. Crew. I do want to mention that we have a show that's not about my family this all, week. All the Jews are your family, Mark. All the Jewish people are your family. Uh, it's true. One big mishpocha. And actually, with all due respect to recent guests and future guests, I'm really excited about this week's guests. We have an interview I've been wanting to for a very long time with author, Ms. Magazine founder, 
founding matriarch of second wave feminism, Letty Cotton Pokerbin, who joins us to talk about her new book, which is called Shonda, a memoir of shame and secrecy. I have to say it's an excellent book, but I was really a little bit taken aback when I when I cracked it open and saw nothing about like Grey's Anatomy or a scandal. <laughs> it was a different Shondaland. Uh. <laughs> This was one of my favorite interviews ever. Uh, we talked about Israel, about feminism, about anti-Semitism, about her life and her career. And you know, if you haven't heard of Letty Cotton Pogrebin, you don't join us. This is one-stop shopping education. It will get you curious and educated. And also she's just remarkable. But before we get on to all of that or the news of the Jews, I do want to close the circle of the bat mitzvah discussion because as you guys know, I've talked to you about this, there is a debate. There's some rancor uh, at Oppenshire Manor. Because we were having trouble finding a bartender for the Saturday night event, which is just a pizza thing. It's not like a big deal, but the people bringing the pizza do not have a liquor license and can't also bring the booze. And it was taking me some time to find the people who bring the booze. And Sid said to me, we'll just skip the booze. Like, we don't need booze. We're not big drinkers. Like, we'll we'll drink Coca-Cola. And the truth is, I would be okay. Like, I don't need the booze. But I am aware that we're having, you know, a few dozen people who may want a beer or a glass of wine. And I said, we can't really do that. And she said, sure we can. Like, we don't have to serve weed gummies. There are people who can't have a good time without weed gummies, but we're not providing trays of weed gummies. And I was like, it's just different. You know, and I, I feel like, look, we've had, this is our third one. We've always at least provided some booze. The last one, my poker buddies brought the cooler. And there are two more to go. And it's a nice tradition. And, that you know, that's the kind of hosts that we are. Yeah. And, you know, not having booze, I would say, is like a pretty good way to make sure that no one comes to the next two. So if you're trying to whittle that invite list down for numbers four and five, show them how fun it is to hang around. Not to say that, that you need alcohol to have fun, but I'm... Oh, I'm I, I, I could say that completely, which is why this is such a conundrum for me. This really kind of cleaves my identity right down the middle, right? Because on the one hand... I'm a cheap Jew, so I really want to save as much money as I can. But on the other hand, I'm also a drunk Jew, so I really believe that a party with no alcohol is not a party. This is this is one of those like impossible Solomonic decisions. Maybe just split the bat mitzvah down the middle. <laughs> the drinking side and the non-drinking side. You know, it is really interesting because theoretically, like, I'm sure there's something that says like you can have a warm Hamisha party, right? With that we sh we shouldn't rely on alcohol to have that. On the other hand, like there's the bare minimum of hosting, which says you know offer the people something to drink um, if they're coming to your party. I don't know. I'm torn. Can I, I wonder. So I, I, if there's I, have, like I, have, I have a kind of of, of a Talmudic kind of way out of it, which I think is actually an elegant. Before we hear the decision that was made. By the in, way, in you've the just transferred to Talmudic now. I always do. Okay, because a little while ago you were like Talmudic, they say moo, but now you're moo. Oh, no, the, the mu. Oh, you're talking about this. Talmudic is how I, like, naturally it comes to me as Talmudic, but someone at one of our live shows told me like, that's actually a really goyish way of pronouncing it. It should be Talmudic. And they're correct. And who was the and Oppenheimer kid who was doing the moo, the shamu? Is it Clara? Oh, that was Clara. This is her bat mitzvah. Like, this, this is, is when perfect. the child the who invented the shamu for the cow get, becomes the woman who still says the Shamu with her cow at night. Who still recites the it. Shamu every it. night. So here, here's, here's my, my kind of, you know, rabbinic take on this. I think this highly depends on whether or not the people who RSVP'd actually like each other. Because if the answer is Ooh. sort of like tangentially like, look, we're all coming to this because we like you Oppenheimers, but I'm going to be stuck talking to, you know, Jim, the, you know, assessor. <laughs> 
and just going to stand there and be like, yeah, that's really interesting. How's, how's your week going? Then there's no freaking way I'm doing this sober. But if it's genuinely a bunch of neighbors who care for each other and, and have a real sort of sense of community, then I think you could totally say, hey, guys, you know, pizza and Pepsi and we're all good. Pepsi will be cruel. Pizza and well, Coke, Coke and Pepsi for yeah. sure. The, the famous bar mitzvah dancing game. This really also cleaves my heritage down the middle because when my mother's family married into my father's family, my mother's family, not drinkers. I mean, would there have been wine at an event? Sure, there would have been wine, but like nobody really would have missed it. And my father's family, when they showed up, it was, you know, the thought was like, you know, it's flowing like mud around here if you don't have a drink in your hand within 30 seconds. And she saw that as very German, very yuckish. Like, who are these Gentiles who don't really eat, but they have their their five whiskeys in, which, by the way, is how you end up with six wives in 30 years. Um, <laughs> let me tell you what we resolved. Uh, I basically said, let, let me have this one. We're going to have alcohol. Don't worry. People won't drink that much. It won't be that expensive. And we shall see. I'll get back to you. Let you know what the bar tab is. I might be setting up a GoFundMe to reimburse us for the bar tab. So um, that's the news of the Oppenheimers. News of the Jews. N-O-T-J, news of the Jews. Uh-huh. Shall we return to the rest of the world and have some news of the Jews? What do you say? Sure. All right. So a couple quick hits before we get to the really important thing. First of all, down in Texas, one of the people who's up for election today, as we tape, is an evangelical Republican running for the House of Representatives. His name is Johnny Teague. And among his great accomplishments is that he wrote a a novel, a self-published novel called The Lost Diary of Anne Frank. It's sort of historical fantasy in which he imagines Anne Frank at the very end, before she dies, embracing Christianity, turning to Jesus uh, for salvation at the very, very end. I put this to you, offensive, not offensive? Does Anne Frank belong to all of us? So this is insane. And I feel like people need to just like chill with Anne Frank. Like it's literally a New Testament to the diary of Anne Frank, right? Like it's, he literally like (laughs) adds something on at the end being like, hey, I think she remembers. But but this is why it's so shitty. First of all, her name is now Christiane Frank. But here's why it's so shitty. Because like, if you're already going to write a, a New Testament to Anne Frank, why not let her live? Yep. Why not Jesus bursts into Auschwitz <laughs> on a Hummer with an M16, shoots down all the Nazis and carries Anne Frank to Wyoming? Yes, yes. And I, but I just, I do think like we talk about this every time one of these Anne Frank stories comes up and there's like this weird obsession with her. And I think we just need to like let her be. She's weirdly like this vessel for people to project onto. And this is like an extreme and a f- deeply offensive example. But like, Let's just let let's just let her be, you know. In the words of the great Darren Horn, everybody loves dead Jews. Let's just let her be and make an eight-part Netflix series in which she's played by a great Jewish actress like Rachel Brosnahan right. or Claire Danes. <laughs> and then we will have the definitive <laughs> Anne Frank forever. And from Texas, obviously, to London, where a London theater group has canceled their Nazi-themed Romeo and Juliet, in which uh, Juliet is a a Jewish girl who falls in love with Romeo, a member of the Hitler Youth. Um, And Juliet is spelled (laughs) J-E-W-L-I-E-T. We just can't win. There's a really great scene uh, on the balcony. He's like, what's what's in the name, Juliet? Ah, that's Goldberg, Janos. This is a problem. So given that we have lost literature to the self-published novels of Johnny Teague, and we've lost theater to the best intentions of London uh, actors gone awry, the only corner of pop culture that is really on our side is pop music. And for this story, with which we conclude News of the Jews, I turn to our pop music correspondent, Liel Leibowitz. So this 
is big, big breaking news from Stephanie and my favorite living recording artist now that, you know, Kanye is no longer an acceptable answer. And so this is from the Jewish Telegraphic Agency singing the praises of the great Stephanie Taylor Swift. <laughs> this week, Shabbat observant Swifties, those would be uh, Stephanie, like Stephanie and myself, people obsessed with Taylor Swift, voiced their disappointment with the dates, which were all slated for during or just after the end of the Jewish Sabbath or Friday or Saturday night. I love how the Jewish Telegraphic Agency explains to its readers what Shabbat is. That was a great moment. (laughs) (laughs) This is, of course, tour dates for Taylor Swift's uh, very in-demand upcoming tour. In response, Swift added eight more shows, (laughs) eight more magical (laughs) nights to the U.S. leg of her tour on Friday all on weeknights in cities such as Philadelphia, Seattle, and Los Angeles. Uh, You know, the shows will be in your local deli. There will be bagels and schmear uh, provided to all who attend. There's minions. This is fantastic. And it ends by saying many applauded the additions. This is Taylor Swift doing more to accommodate Jewish life than I would say most Jewish institutions. So, okay, here's the thing. I'm, I'm torn about this because on the one hand, Tickets haven't even gone on sale yet, and they're already sold out in a way. Like, they, like it's going to be impossible to get tickets. So on the one hand, I'm like, adding any tour dates on days that are not already booked for tour dates is not necessarily an accommodation to the Jewish people. Like, there are like, might actually not have been because of this. But I don't know if you saw this. There are these amazing videos on TikTok of all these, like, Orthodox fans being like, 15 years of being a Swifty and, like, no concert that I can go to. So I do, I believe that we we need to take this as a win and something that she did to accommodate us also, specifically. Tickets, tickets will be $36. $36,000, I think, is the problem. 18% go to Hadassah. So if anyone can get those tickets to those non-Shabbat shows, uh, and, if, and if you buy the VIP tier for tickets, uh, you get a little gold lioness. <laughs> That's a joke for a very specific audience. As the non-Swift observant Jew here, I have a few questions. First of all, when you started talking about Sabbath observant Swifties, if there are Sabbath observant Swifties, Stephanie, are you a Swift observant Jew? There's like two communities. Yes, yes. Like there are bagel yes. Jews and, and I'm a Taylor Swift Jew. You're a Swift observant Jew. Number two, did this woman really never have shows on weekdays before this? 15 years and she's never had a show on a Wednesday or Thursday? Is that how she rolls? Is it because all of her fans have to do their homework? I think that's right. Like, I think the majority of her fans are young people. Mom and dad have to drive you to this thing. Anyway, Taylor Swift, uh, thank you for for being our, our friend. And um, could we get some tickets, please? And in response, Kanye just announced that all of his shows are going to be on Shmini uh, Atzeret. And Som Gedalia. And Som Gedalia. <laughs> all on Jewish fast days. Tanis Esther. yo. Just one contentious letter this week on a burning topic. Liel, you should read it. (coughs) When Liel was speaking to Faith, she asked about Jewish mourning rituals. Liel gave the very traditional response saying that Jews do not cremate and that they bury their dead right away, sometimes the same day. What he did not say was that this is the traditional halachic way 
of doing things, but that there are many, many progressive Jews who consider themselves Jewish and do not follow traditional halacha. I think this was a disservice both to your guest who is trying to learn more about Judaism and to your many listeners who do not identify as Orthodox. Please be sure to add a statement saying that there are multiple streams of Judaism when talking about Jewish practice and customs. Please do not use my name on your podcast. Uh, Dear, please do not use my name on your podcast. Uh, No. No, we will do no such thing. Because while there are many ways uh, of being Jewish, uh, some of them observant, some of them uh, less so, there is Judaism, which has very, very specific rules and customs. Now, you are, of course, free to, uh, you know, help yourself to that uh, BLT or to cremate a loved one or to, you know, go for a car ride on the Sabbath. But that does not mean that Jewish rituals per se must change to accommodate your tastes and predilections and preferences. So there is one Judaism, which we all interpret and share in in very, very different ways. But it is incumbent upon us to first know what the freak we're talking about before making our choices. Sincerely, Liel. Sincerely, use my yeah. name on this you podcast. Want your for that? Do use my name no, on I the think, podcast. I think it's interesting. And like I think a lot about that conversation with Faith. And like we've told her, we're like, we want you back on the show. We want to start a million more conversations. Because I, I think that what she's wondering are things that so many of us are wondering. I don't know. And beyond, right, you know, but, beyond but, the specific but, but, point, but the slide, I, I find the whole conversation very moving. But the, the conversation was very moving, but precisely because it was taken in the exact opposite spirit of this letter writer, which basically is implying that, well, Judaism is tradition, as someone uh, said on the panel I was re- recently on, some Jewish communal professional said it, tradition is whatever you make of it. No, it's not. There is a, you know, a, a stream, shall we say, a torrent, a, a, a beautiful thing called Judaism. And from it, we are all free to diverge in ways that are sometimes very thoughtful and meaningful and sometimes just personal preference to say, look, I understand that X or Y or Z is a mitzvah. I'm, I'm just not ready to do it. What is completely insufferable to me is this expectation that will say, well, you know, some Jews cremate. Some Jews don't keep the Sabbath and don't keep kosher. So you should say Judaism endorses all these things. No, it does not. Uh, you could say, look, I choose to do X because I have divergent beliefs or even my divergent beliefs are actually in direct conversation with what I see as the spirit, though not the letter of Jewish practice. But you can't just say, hey, man, this offends my very modern sensibilities. So please change the offensive thing to be more inclusive. It's not about you, dear. Don't mention my name on the podcast. It's about something much greater. Let me split the difference, if I may. First of all, it's not like tradition gives us all the answers. There's always been a necessity for interpretation. A great example is, as you bring up, Shabbat observance, right? There are 39 malachot, which are things you're not supposed to do on Shabbat. You're not supposed to build. You're not supposed to work. You're not supposed to cut. All these things. But the question of what those are, like whether using electricity violates the prohibition against kindling a flame, is something that we've needed to continue to adumbrate and and think about and interpret over time. It's not at all clear. And the same thing goes for certain aspects of kashras. So it is not the case that there's one Judaism that you just open the book, find, you know, rule number seven, C, 
Roman numeral lowercase three, and you can answer it. And it's, you know, Catholicism, you can, I always say, you can go to Barnes & Noble and buy the catechism. They literally tell you everything you need to know in a book you can buy at Barnes & Noble. That's not the case with Judaism. Though if there were to be a book, it would be the newest Jewish encyclopedia, the book that we three co-edited. Available wherever you buy. Yeah. On sale for $28.95. So that's number one. And while I agree with you that it's not anything you want it to be, it is also the case that we constantly have to figure out, even if you see yourself as highly bound by halakha and Jewish law, to figure out new, unthought of questions before. But here's the thing. I think that she who who asks not to be named is actually making a different point, though she doesn't say it exactly the right way, which is that when you describe for listeners who don't know a lot about Judaism, whether they're Jewish or, or non-Jewish, but they don't know a lot and they treat us as an internationally certified panel of Jewish experts, when you say Jews bury within 24 hours or as soon as possible and they don't cremate, you might actually be descriptively misleading people because, of course, it is the case that a majority of American Jews don't bury right away and increasing numbers of them do cremate. Whether they are being Jewish in doing so or think of themselves or care if they're being Jewish or not when they do that is almost beside the point. It is just descriptively wrong to explain Judaism to people as if everyone is following orthodox practices. So you just might be misleading people. It's as if you said, look, Jews don't eat pork. Hey, Gentile Lutheran who wants to know about Jews, you should know Jews don't eat pork. That's simply a false fact. Most Jews eat pork. So I think she's just saying, be descriptively accurate about the range of relationships to halakha within Judaism. So, so let me, uh, so let me yes and you here. Uh, I agree with everything you said, but it's precisely this agreement that makes me triple down on, on my comment. Judaism, as you very accurately stated, is not uh, a monolithic religion. In fact, our great uh, codex, the Talmud, is, uh, is, is a study in contradiction. Uh, it is all one huge thicket uh, of, of contradictions inviting us to partake in the argument and ask the difficult questions. That is its beauty and its strength, precisely because in many, many cases, the laws aren't set and rather invite, uh, you know, constant questioning and argument. However, the thing that we are all bound to is a certain kind of tradition that we're constantly grappling with, wrestling with, trying to interpret, trying to make sense of, which is why I think that us, International Panel of Jewish Experts, etc., have a, a, an obligation, first and foremost, to actually tether people or to root or reroute people back in these laws, in these rules, in these stories, in these traditions, which sadly have become so inaccessible to so many, rather than say, well, you know, uh, most Jews eat whatever the flip they want. I think we should say, no, Jews don't do that. Now, that having been said, obviously, uh, if you know the first thing about Judaism, and if you listen to the show for three minutes, you already hear three very different voices, that then invites you to say, well, hold on, why not? Well, what does kashrut mean? Does it mean just not eating these animals? Or does it mean being vegan because you should be ethical to animals and the planet? Or does it mean also caring about the servers who prepared your food or whether or not they were fairly paid? Like all these these questions stem from uh, from somewhere, and they can't just stem from some sociological description of what Jews do or do not do in their general interest. Uh, it it should stem from the actual heart of the thing. Okay, so can we agree that you know she's on to something when she says like, please add a disclaimer that not everyone does this stuff. I think I think that's that's a, a fair point that we can take from it, and that's an entry point to a new conversation that I think the three of us all are excited 
to have. But by the way, if some if people are writing in, I do want some some more context from our listeners because in that conversation, I said with Faith, I was like, I don't know that everyone does the Hever Kadisha Burial Society. Like, I don't know that all Jews do that. Like, I don't know if that's something that my own family has done ever. And yeah. so I, I just don't know because it's something that I feel like people don't talk about. And so people, I want people to write in and tell us sure, like- our job is to talk about it so that people know and then make up better, make better decisions. So I need to know. So can people tell me the answer and then I'll, t- and then I'll use it on the podcast. Can someone just. And by the way, if you want a primer on this uh, chapter, whatever of my book on Pittsburgh, yep. honestly, I learned so much. I didn't know about Hever Kadisha and Jewish burial practices until I went and saw the extraordinary work that some of these, of these holy societies to translate it literally are doing. We want to hear Mark, about that. The we first also want to rule hear, of Hever Kadisha is you don't talk about Hever Kadisha. Weirdly, it is though, right? You're not supposed to know who's in, a, a who in the community is in the burial society. So it's like, it is this like. Because, because you're not. You're not supposed to have kiddish next to someone and think this person could be seeing my naked body when I die. It, it's That's exactly right. Uh, Jews, let us know your thoughts on all of this, on Jewish burial, on whether there's Jewish tradition or traditions, on whether Sid and I have to serve alcohol this weekend. Uh, write to <laughs> the us. The real questions at, of our time. Uh, on Orthodox at tabletmag.com or call us at 914-570-4869. are excited to announce Tablet's first ever essay competition, First Personal. Our editors are looking for previously unpublished work by writers living in North America who have never written for Tablet before. They are seeking submissions on the theme of belonging. Where do you feel at home or no longer at home, physically, spiritually, or culturally? How do you find community or a sense that you're a part of something larger than yourself? Are there places where you feel a sense of belonging or alienation or both? Tablet is seeking personal essays about your life and your experiences and how your thoughts and feelings have evolved over time. Tablet editors will review all submissions and choose their favorite five, which they will edit with the writers. The authors of those five pieces will be brought to New York City to read their story in front of a live audience. A guest judge will then select the winner. The winning essay will be published in Tablet and the winner will receive $500. For more information and to submit your essay, please visit tabletmag.com essaycontest. Letty Cotton Pogerman is an author and activist. She is a founding member of the National Women's Political Caucus. She helped start the legendary feminist periodical, Ms. Magazine. She is a serious Jew, a serious human, and she's the author of a new book called Shonda. I had the extraordinary pleasure of talking with her recently. Please strap in, buckle in, ready yourself for takeoff, and listen to my conversation with Letty Cotton Pogerman. such an honor to have you on Unorthodox. Thanks for being on our podcast. Thank you, Mark. I'm really thrilled that you have invited me. This is a, a great honor. Yeah, no, this is going to be um, tons of fun. Our listeners will 
know the family name since you are the mother of Abby Progerman, who's been hosting stuff on our show and for Tablet. You are her mom, right? I am her mom and her twin's mom and also my son's mom. Your latest book is Shonda, A Memoir of Shame and Secrecy. And I want to get around to that. But first, I want to back up. You are one of the founding mothers of second wave feminism. And I want to ask you to say a bit, and you touch on this a little bit in this book, but more importantly, one of your other books. But for those who don't know your work, could you say a bit about how you discovered that you were a feminist? Well, I didn't consciously know I was a feminist, but in looking back, retrospectively, I became a feminist when my father refused to count me in the minion for the shiva, the morning period, the first day when everyone was gathered in our living room. And it was packed full of maybe 99.9% Jews, but there were only nine real Jews in the room. My father could only count nine men because my mother had died uh, with a lot of women friends. And I had been very Jewishly educated, quote, for a girl in my era. I was born in 39. Uh, It wasn't typical to send a a girl to Hebrew school from age three until I graduated from Hebrew high school. And then I took two years at uh, Yeshiva of Central Queens. And then I was one of the first girls to become bat mitzvah in conservative Judaism in 1952. So for all that training, when my mother died in 55, my father would not count me in the minion. Of course, I knew that I didn't count in the minion, but my father was in charge of Judaism in our life. My father was the classic patriarchal Jewish dad. He was very well educated Jewishly. He had tutored bar mitzvah boys when he was getting himself through law school in 1920 to 23. And he was a, a Baal could He could chant the Torah. He with very little uh, advanced practice if needed. And he was a Talmud scholar. So my father had authority to decide I could count because my father had changed a lot of rules in our house, which had moved sort of seamlessly from Orthodox to high conservative uh, in the 40s when they moved uh, to a place where you couldn't walk to shul. You couldn't walk to shul. It was a, a long walk to shul. So my father gave himself a tshuva, a ruling that you could walk to shul long before the, the rabbanim in, in conservative Judaism made that, that choice. Uh, so I thought, my and my father, by the way, smoked on Saturdays. He found a way to rule that it wasn't making fire because it was his Zippo or something like that. And uh, he wouldn't bend the rules for me. And uh, I dropped out of Judaism then, which is a lot to say for me because I was a very pious little girl. I was a good student. I wanted to be bat mitzvah. I didn't have to be dragged into any of it, even though my bat mitzvah reception was entirely <clears throat> the following Manischewitz wine and sponge cake, while all the boys that I knew were getting extravaganzas and sometimes even in Manhattan. We lived in Queens, which was a big deal. And so I I sort of left Judaism then. I I disassociated myself from what we call belonging Judaism. You know, when you say to your friend, where do you belong? We know what we mean by that. We mean, you know, what synagogue you belong to, what organizations, where are you in the Jewish world? And I dropped out of the Jewish world and I only observed the Judaism of my mama who was raised in a shtetl in Hungary, came here when she was about nine years old. She lied about her age. That's one of the many secrets in my my book, in my life. She was uneducated. She pretended she was a high school graduate. She never did go to high school, but she had a beautiful shtetl Judaism. She had a Judaism of beautification and superstition. 
So we had a very beautiful holiday table, a Shabbat table. My mother would decorate the mirror with the scene of the Exodus or she would have Esther and, you know, made out of a celery with a parsley skirt. And then she would act it out for me. She would act out the, the home Gila. So my mother was a storyteller and an artist. She was not educated. And I chose my mother's Judaism for 15 years and I left organized Jewish life. And I didn't come back until I became the Chazanit of a Fire Island community that rose out of the sand to make a uh, high Holy Day services. And that was in 1970. From 1985 to 1970, I was unaffiliated and hostile. <laughs> unaffiliated and hostile. That's a, a well well said. I um, I love the part of your book where you talk about your father's self-serving tshuvas. And of course, you pointed out that there was hypocrisy there as well because he had decided it was okay to walk, but he still parked five blocks away. Right. And he also smoked and put out a cigarette five blocks away. If he was going to be a brave, you know, kind of representative of the new modern Judaism, why didn't he stand by his decisions and drive right up to the shore? And that moment in your book, when you talk about wanting to say Kaddish, wanting to be counted in the minion is so poignant because you, you said at the end of that chapter, I think you concluded the chapter by saying, it, you know, it wasn't that my father was unafraid to bend the rules, but he didn't want to be seen doing it in front of all of these people. In front of all his friends, right. And and for you, he wouldn't do that. And it was it was really brought tears to my eyes. So he called someone else, right? They And the guy they pulled out, the guy they pulled to make the minion, like was holding the Sidor upside down and didn't know from anything. And like, there you are, a learned woman, learned girl, learned teenage girl, not right. counted. Right, exactly, Mark. Thank you for empathizing because it hurts <laughs> this very day. <laughs> you know, I I have a daughter who's 15 and quite learned, much more learned than I. And she's in abroad for the year. And so we were talking via FaceTime or something. And the shuls that are available to her this year are generally Orthodox shuls. And she said, you know, I have no problem going to an Orthodox shul. And I even respect a lot of their practices. I respect their Shabbat observance. I respect their kashrut. I could see making those meaningful parts of my life. She said, but you know, back home, the best laners in the shul, <laughs> three of the best laners are me and my two sisters. And what, we're not going to lane? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> uh, well, you know, in Fire Island, we were uh, sitting on the beach one day at the tail end of August and some men in our little community of Salt Air. For your listeners who don't know Salt Air, Fire Island, it's on a spit that's 27 miles long. And each community along those little 27 miles is different. And our community was a formerly restricted Irish Catholic community that then in the 60s suddenly started accepting Jews. And in 1970, a group of uh, men sitting on the beach said to each other, you know, wouldn't it be nice if we didn't have to go back to New York City and, uh, you know, sit in a hot shul? These obviously were not very firm people, but they were once a year Jews and it mattered to them. They pray once a year and they said, why don't we just start our own service? And they're talking about how they can go to the one store we have in our community and get the sponge cake and the requisite Manischewitz to have Rosh Hashanah evening. And then we should just put an orange crate on, a crate on top of a picnic table and a cloth over it. And somebody should chant and, you know, we'll just do a 
portions of the service, we'll figure out the prayers we have to do. This will be so much better than going back to the city. And why don't you all bring in, you know, your extra yarmulkes from the Schwartz Bar Mitzvah and the Goldberg wedding and torn talatim that the talatim that the uh, synagogue doesn't use anymore and bring the little messed up machsorim uh, that are around and all that. And we'll actually have a service. And then they say, well, who's going to run it? And not one of them was comfortable in Hebrew, not one of these guys. And there must have been 10 sitting around because at this point we thought we only we had maybe 20 Jews in this little community. We didn't know because it's only two years after they stopped with the restricting thing. And I raised my hand and I don't know why, because it had been 15 years since I had you know, done anything serious in Judaism. I had done my mother's Judaism. I had done Hamish Judaism. I had bought an overflow ticket. I in a you know service somewhere on the Upper West Side. I went shul shopping. I didn't care what it was. I was going to do my vidui in, in, a, in a group. I wasn't going to do it by myself. And I never taught my children anything except the prayers that go with eating, basically. And I raised my hand anyway. And I became the chazanit of this little pop-up shul and for 13 years, I stood in the pulpit and we were offered the Protestant church. And then we outgrew the Protestant church and we were offered the Catholic church. And we filled the Catholic church because there were Jews everywhere. There were underground Jews everywhere. Part of the thing about writing Shonda, a memoir of shame and secrecy, is you learn how well we hide ourselves. We have white privilege. We hide ourselves. So around that time, 1970, you're talking exactly at the moment when the women's movement was cresting. And I'm curious how you, um, for those who don't know, you know, how did you find yourself in the women's movement? What was your activity in that? And, 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 and how did that become such a central part of your life um, really 50 years ago exactly? Uh, I suppose feminism replaced Judaism for me. It, it was, uh, it was a, um, it's a way of thinking by which I ran my life. Uh, it's a value system that spoke to me and, and spoke to my experience. I was very fortunate. I wrote a book called How to Make It in a Man's World. It was my first book. It was published in 1970, and it got a rave in the New York Times. As a result, I got a phone call from someone named Betty Friedan, who said, um, I would like very much for you to join me in organizing the National Women's Political Caucus. We, our goal is to pull together women who care about women's issues, whether they're Republican or Democrat, as long as they're pro-choice, and to put the feet to the fire of both parties and ask them to own up on women's issues, put them in the platform. So we were organizing for this 1971 um, National Women's Political Caucus founding conference. And at this point, I'm, I'm writing a column for the ladies on journal called The Woman, The Working Woman, the first time that there were working women's issues in a mainstream women's magazine. And Betty Friedan had seen that I, I had written this column and she wanted me to focus on working issues and so on and to write up the plenary session where there were going to be discriminatory issues discussed that we wanted to create a, a kind of agenda for the party conventions. And I go into this room to work on my notes and who's in the room, but Gloria Steinem. And I meet Gloria and we both start working together on, she's an amazingly generous human being. And I said, oh, I'm sorry. I, I didn't realize the room was occupied. I'm here supposedly writing up the notes. And she said, well, I'm writing up the notes too. Let's work together. And next thing we know, know we're friends and she's invited me to join her and a few other women in founding 
Ms. Magazine. What became Ms. Magazine took a while to actually find the title. We almost became bitch. We almost became sister. We almost became a lot of things. But we ended up with Ms. because Ms. was already in the secretarial manuals. If you had to say dear so-and-so and you didn't know whether a woman was married or not, you used Ms. The way Mr. does not uh, broadcast whether a man is married or not. And we thought that's symbolic enough for us to to take that as the name of the magazine. And from there, I just became a passionate uh, activist feminist, pretty fearless, I would say, for those years, just as I felt entirely fearless when I was a, a Jewish girl saying, why can't I study Talmud? You know, it, it just is in my blood to do that, to say, this isn't fair, this isn't just, let us in, you know, or let me do it, or why can't I? And so my feminism was very much in full force at the point when I discovered Jewish feminism. And I discovered Jewish feminism because I had started being the leader of this congregation in where I said to myself, you know, the heavens didn't crash. I'm in the pulpit. I even chanted the Kol Nidre and the world turned and the sun rose in the morning and it wasn't somehow or other crossing a line. In fact, I had gone walking on the beach and I had, because I'm a believer, I had really prayed for an answer and I got a sunset. I got a spectacular sunset. And that was why I chanted Kony Trey. Otherwise, I don't know if I would have had the nerve. So now I'm both a feminist and a Jewish feminist. And then I uh, I just became active in everything you could become active in. You know, I, I, I wrote, it was, I think, an eight page piece in Ms. Magazine or even longer because I discovered there was anti-Semitism in a movement that I thought was going to liberate half the human race. And instead, it was half the human race, except, hey, wait a minute, not always Jewish women. So for those who haven't read the piece, in 1982, you published in Ms. Magazine an article about eight to 10 pages long, anti-Semitism in the women's movement. It's not only a powerful article and a disturbing one, but extremely prescient. I mean, you're talking about these tensions between fashionable leftists who think it's cool to pick on the Jews, between Zionists and anti-Zionists, even delving into the internalized shame and even into a, a point that I thought I had come up with, which was why do we call ourselves Jewish instead of just saying we're Jews, uh, which is a piece I wrote in the Times a number of years ago. And I said, let's use the noun. Let's say, you know, I'm a Jew, but we can't because the Christian copy editors tell us that's a slur. And, you know, to call someone a Christian is a compliment. He's a real Christian, but to call someone a real Jew is somehow an insult. And you were there in 1982. For those who haven't read the piece, what were you seeing around you in feminist circles that concerned you and made you feel that there was anti-Semitism in feminism that had to be called out? First of all, I need to say that the anti-Semitism on the right is dangerous and the anti-Semitism on the left is ideological, in my opinion. So I'm not going to ever equate them, but I was surprised to find it on the left. Let me put it that way. Because I thought, you know, deliverance came in a package. You know, you didn't say, okay, I'm going to free this group and not that group. Well, the first time I found it was when SPAC went up, when we were trying to uh, schedule a conference. And I looked at my calendar and I had a calendar with Hebrew, Hebrew dates in it as well. And I saw that it was going to be on Rosh Hashanah. I said, we can't do that. It's Rosh Hashanah. And they said, oh, so, so, so those Jews won't come, somebody said. And I, I said, well, how would you feel about something you know, on Easter, so those Christians won't come. And then it was like, well, but this, so, and on and on it went, excuses for not including 
Jewish ethnic experience along with uh, African-American experience or Asian-American experience or the experience of disabled people. I mean, any any group that was suddenly be, was being tar, you know, targeted for special attention and concern, we couldn't be included because we were considered wealthy. And then you had to trot out all the statistics about how not all Jews are wealthy, which I thought was so remarkable because my life spans when Jews were poor, you know. I mean, I know my family was poor. Everybody was poor. And, you know, the Lower East Side was, you know, 20, 30 years out of my experience, prior to my experience. In fact, when on my husband and I, when we had our 35th wedding anniversary, we purposely rented out the, the tenement museum on the Lower East Side because we wanted our entire extended family and all the youngest ones to see where we came from. One generation before... Uh, me and my husband, we wanted them to see that, you know, two kids, two people slept in one bed and that there was one bathroom in the whole floor for something like 30 people. And we wanted them to feel it viscerally. Well, that experience had been blotted out in the feminist movement because we were so busy looking at, you know, what it was like to be a sharecropper or a poor person in Appalachia, wherever, except not Jews. And that got my back up a lot. I also felt it because we honored in feminism a kind of Quaker-style consciousness raising. We respected everybody and gave them their time. Now, I don't know about you, but I was raised in a household where you interrupted, and it was part of the fervor and the vibrancy of, I, of the exchange of ideas. Nobody waited for people to finish, and everybody learned the discourse of interrupting, reacting, building on someone's argument, you know, that's complicated, but you learn it as a child and it's very hard to unlearn it. So we Jews who sat in a circle trying to behave every time we would pop out with something, um, we would get put down and we would be called terrible names, uh, which I experienced as an anti-Jewish reaction. You are really my soul sister because I have made this point on the podcast. I have said that the idea of everyone waiting, the sort of anti-interruption movement, I said it's anti-Semitic. I've said what they've done is taken a Midwestern Protestant motif, and you could, and also sort of the it's Quaker. It's all these things that liberals valorize. Oh, the the, the Quakers are like this. The Mennonites are like this. Oh, we're going to do it by consensus, and everyone's going to no one's going to speak till everyone's spoken. You're going to hold up your card, and you have to put your speaking card in the middle. All of this stuff that's meant to give everyone space is also profoundly hostile to a certain kind of Ashkenazi immigrant culture. And I've and I think it I think it's does an actual kind of violence to the experience of Jews, including Jewish women who are every bit as talky, according to the sociolinguistics, as Jewish men. And I, I just, you were there, you were pointing that out, how culturally alien it was to be told, let's all sit cross-legged and quiet with our fingers steepled. We can't object to the erasure of women in various spaces and not object to the erasure of Jews. And also it pissed off a lot of people that Betty Friedan was Jewish and Gloria Steinem was half Jewish, although with her name, people thought she was Jewish before they knew more about her. I was Jewish. Barbara Steeman was Jewish, was a health way ahead in health. Ellen Willis was Jewish. All kinds of the theoretical women were Jewish. Shalamit Firestone was Jewish. I mean, there were Jews everywhere and it pissed people off that we got attention. So let's be honest about it. 
we got attention because we had chutzpah. And why did we have chutzpah? Because we'd been slapped down for being Jewish here, there, or everywhere. And we kind of developed a carapace that allowed us to be rebellious and, and unafraid in many instances. And we needed to be recognized in the movement, I felt, as as a strength, as a as an advantage, as as a, a, a tool, as an instrument, rather than as hogging space, it was a purpose for us having these these survival skills that Jews developed over time. So, when you wrote that article, 1982, which, by the way, I don't think Ms. Magazine would publish today. Nobody would publish that many pages, Mark. <laughs> well, so, right. So, first of all, nobody would publish six thousand words or whatever it is, as you and I both know. But I also think that it would step on certain sensibilities today too much so. But whatever. You published it in 1982. What was the blowback? What was the response you got? Well, the entire letters column in the next issue was devoted to the response. And there were a number of academics who mostly responded to my views on the Israel-Palestine thing. And I don't want to get into that there because we'll never talk about my book if we start talking about Israel-Palestine. But that was basically their uh, their resistance because I have a whole section where where I talk about the the state of Israel is the affirmative action of the Jewish for the Jewish people. I mean, it's an affirmative action in the same way that that reparations are, you know, an affirmative action or anything that tries to correct a formal a prior wrong. So people should go read it. And fortunately, it's available in the Jewish Women's Archive um, at JWA.org. You can find it. And it's 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 also, I should say, just an enormously fun read. I mean, it's it's not <laughs> it's not lugubrious at all. It's really interesting and zippy. And that's because you're a good writer, uh, which is evident in the new book, Shonda, A Memoir of Shame and Secrecy. Do you want to tell people what the Shonda is at the heart of the book or do you want to make them buy it to find out? I want to make them buy it to find out my my secret, um, which is in chapter one. But Shonda, the, the book is 52 chapters, and every one of them is, a Shonda is a secret. A, a Shonda is something viewed as a disgrace by a social group, namely the Jews. A Shonda is what you might call being canceled to the, in today's world, except that it had all, all the ramifications, plus you couldn't marry off your children. So besides being canceled in your career and canceled and looked askance at in the street, you also had to worry that maybe you you couldn't make a shit off. And when the Jewish communities founded themselves here, they didn't make marriages, but they did care desperately to be accepted. What my family wanted was to become real Americans. They were very committed to the melting pot. They did not want to stand out. They would keep their Jewishness in their communities, but they wanted to move in the world as Americans. So they were always on guard against doing anything that would shame the Jews. And in the book, as you may have noticed, I have a capital T and a capital J because that's how I saw my people growing up. And anything I did or anything I wore or anything I said or when I was found doing something naughty, was going to reflect on my family and the Jewish people. And so I had an enormous responsibility to be excellent. I had to be excellent. I had to be perfect. I had to be a great student. I had to be well-behaved because it wasn't just for me. It was to stop Ashanda from happening. Is that a bad thing? No, I could see an argument. I could see an argument that we need more of that today. I'd like to be able to say to my kids, like, you know, 
hold your head a little higher. You're a Jew. Like the people are watching. I don't know. I mean, I understand there's a dark side to it, which is there is fear, but is there an upside? I make the point that I was raised on the horns of a dilemma. And one is I believed fervently in Jewish exceptionalism, which is not kosher today, but I think was important for those of us from the immigrant generation. My father was born here, but only just because his mother made it off the boat while she was pregnant and and went into labor when she was on the ground of the U.S. But he was basically from an immigrant family. And my mother was born in Pilipits in Hungary. And these are people who they brought shame with them. They were minorities. They were hated. They were spit upon. They didn't want that to happen here. So they inculcated a real sense of shame, which was useful in making us rise up and be our best selves at a time when it mattered. And look at us. I mean, I had to take my family to the Tenement Museum because they were so far from it. You know, they were all successful people and they'd all gone to the Ivy schools or Brandeis University in my case. And we needed a reminder that we came from some place where we had to prove ourselves. We had to prove ourselves worthy. We didn't feel worthy in and of ourselves. So the exceptionalism on the one hand and the need to prove yourself worthy of this ideal sense of what a real American is. And if there's a third horn, it's the fear of the of the the Shoah had just ended. Basically, I, I lived through it with memory. I was six years old. I was five or six years old at the end of the war, but I was very tuned in to my parents' fears and what was going on in my family and the fact that care packages came back, you know, addressee unknown and all of that. So I, felt, you know, until the war was over, I, I felt that Hitler could, you know, land in Idlewild Airport and take over the Jamaica Jewish Center. I had to be afraid. So I had to be excellent. I had to be superior. I had to be exceptional and I had to be afraid. It's so interesting. I think that you've identified something so real about the Jewish experience, which is that I think all Jews in, certainly in the diaspora, not living in Jewish lands as a minority people where they are everywhere except in Israel, have a sense of shame, a sense of wanting to, you know, pass, right? And yet, if they're at all in touch with their Judaism, the tradition, I think, does teach a sense of, of exceptionalism in a, in, a, in a good way. I mean, I'm reminded, you know, there's the, the Disraeli, who, of course, you know, was not so into his Judaism, right, who got baptized. <laughs> but, you know, famously, he was, he was accosted by this Irish politician, and he said, somebody said, you called him a Jew, and he said, I'm a Jew. And while the ancestors of the right honorable gentleman were brutal savages in an unknown island, mine were priests in the Temple of Solomon, right? Like, this is, he basically was like... <laughs> 3,000 years ago, where were your people? While my people were creating monotheism, where were your people? And I think about that all the time because this, of course, was someone who also had wanted to escape his Judaism, but also was very proud of his Judaism. And I think that's in everyone. I think it's in everyone I know. In Shanda, I don't speak for um, anyone but Ashkenazi Jews because I really don't know what the Sephardi mindset is, so I don't presume to speak for them. But certainly the Ashkenazi mindset is so well known to me. I'm half Litvak and half Litziana. So I'm, again, I'm on the horns of another dilemma. I'm irrational. I'm, I'm like, uh, I say in the book, I think I say that I am a Leonard Nimoy as Spock and I'm, a, what's her name, the nanny. 
Fran Drescher, your Fran Drescher and, and Leonard and Nimoy. That's, that's my Galiziana and, and Leonard God. Nimoy is my Litvak father. But I think that, the, you know, we live with we live with such contradiction and such complexity. And so when you ask me, isn't some shame good? I end the book by saying I want us to live a secret free life, but not without shame. And I yeah. worry about the Israelis because the Israelis don't know from the word Shonda. When I go to Israel, I can't believe that the Sabra Jews, the born born in Israel Jews, and, and most most Jews, most Israeli Jews use Busha Vecherpa. They use shame, shame and disgrace, not the Shonda. They don't know from the Shonda except that they're Zaidi or their long great-grandparents knew from the Shonda. And that is a Yiddish old world mindset to them. And they abandon it. They proudly abandon it. But in the process, they're rude. We all know. I mean, we make jokes about it. You land in Israel, you have to be careful. You're going to get shoved with you with somebody's baggage card and somebody's going to say, yalla, yalla, move, move, move. <laughs> and, you know, you're going to be uh, asked very highly personal questions by people. And in a way, we love it. So, Letty, give me a couple of examples of what you mean by Shonda. Okay. In in my family, there's all the examples you can stand. Um, My Aunt Joan, who uh, married my Uncle Herbie just after the war, when he came back from the army, was being badgered by the ants in my family. And uh, I come from a very large family, seven aunts and uncles and their spouses on one side, seven aunts and uncles and spouses on the other. And I'm one of 24 cousins in my generation. So um, we had a lot of people, when I say, we're bullying my Aunt Joan. When are you going to have a baby? When are you going to have a baby? When? You, where's the bump? Where's the baby bump? And she finally admitted that she was barren. And then, of course, the family goes into it, but pity mode because it's post-Holocaust and here's a woman who can't have a child. And so we have to keep our children away from her. We have to keep the babies away. We shouldn't show ourselves when we're pregnant. <laughs> and everyone was sparing her, poor Aunt Joan, from exposure because we were a pro-natalist family, which is what Jewish families were after the war and I think still are for the most part. And one, uh, one uh, Passover, I'm sitting with her, we're both holding chocolate matzahs in our hand at the end of a Seder. And uh, it's 1968, and I've just given birth to my son, David, and she's talking to me about how cute baby he is. And I'm really uncomfortable because I've messed up here and I've allowed this subject to come between us. And I'm, I'm, I'm ashamed of myself. And she grabs my, and I keep trying to talk about how good the chocolate matzah is and how Barton's didn't used to be so good and all that. And she grabs my arm and says, you don't have to protect me. I'm not barren. I've had two abortions. I just could never tell our family. They would never stop hocking me. I could never tell them that Herbie and I didn't want children. You can't not want children in this family in case you haven't noticed, she said. So she lied. She hid the truth about herself and made herself a barren woman rather than have to uh, accept the shame of how could you possibly not want children? What's wrong with you, Joan? No Jew doesn't want children. You're not going to replenish our people. You must be free, a freak, you know, of nature. And uh, it, it seemed to me a, a deeply sad thing. And of course, I had a I had a nephew who had to hide that he was gay 
he came out to me in a letter so that I would tell my sister because he was afraid to tell my sister and brother-in-law because they they were a half generation older than I. He thought I would be, you know, I had a motor scooter and I had a, a dog and a duck and a rabbit. And I, <laughs> I then became a feminist and helped to found a magazine. I could probably be the person to come out to safely. And he did, but he was le leading a lie up until then. So we had a homosexual, we had a secret a woman who wanted not to have children and was afraid to admit it. We had somebody in our family who, who uh, shamed the family because he went on a radio program that had 30 million people, listeners every week called Ask Mr. Anthony, I think, or something like that, the Goodwill Hour. And he went on and complained about our family on the air and asked Mr. Anthony for to solve his problem because he wanted to inherit his his father's store on the Lower East Side and his brothers wouldn't let him. And he was the only one who was married and shouldn't he get the store? And he did a Shonda, a Shonda for the Goyim, the worst kind of Shonda, a Shonda in front of the Gentile world. He went on the radio. It's like it's like going on Saturday Night Live and shaming your family in those years, in, in the 30s. So there's three examples of Shandas that, that brought incredible pain in my family that made people hide. We are a people who know how to hide. You know, we hide, we hide behind a veil in the case of Leah in the Bible. We hide in the Inquisition. We hide during the Holocaust. We change our names, we accommodate, but we shouldn't have to be ashamed of things that are beyond our control or that there's nothing, absolutely nothing wrong with. And that's, I guess, the message of, of Shonda, at least the message part about, about the secrecy, that I hope we have a secrecy life in our future. So it's a great book. It's a, it's a great narrative and it's also a great book of ideas. Before we go, how's feminism doing now? Um, I think feminism is alive and well, though, you know, we don't notice it in the way that fish don't notice they're in water because it's all around us now. I mean, when you have Madonna as a feminist and Beyonce as, Beyonce as a feminist, I mean, feminists, it's okay to be a feminist. The question is what kind, how, how true to uh, one's ideals and how willing to put your, your neck on the line. And uh, I think at this point, we know that we didn't do enough on choice. We, we couldn't believe that the court would ever take away rights. The court has never taken away rights, constitutional rights. How could we believe this could happen? And we weren't prepared. And now we have to, uh, re, you know, we have to get back in the saddle and uh, ride a new ride and with a new strategy and a new map. And it's going to probably be state by state because I don't see, unless there's a great surprise in the midterms, I don't see that the Congress is going to pass a federal law. Uh, legalizing abortion. So we have to do it at the state level and we have to protect against these uh, Neanderthals who would like to make uh, abortion murder and punish women and punish doctors and make people vigilantes in their own towns. How important is historical memory about feminism? I mean, I think about my daughters who have t-shirts that have Ruth Bader Ginsburg on them, but probably don't. And they're only, you know, teenagers at the eldest know who Betty Friedan 
or Bella Abzug. I mean, they should all obviously sit and watch Mrs. America. So they at least have a basic idea of who Bella Abzug was. But, you know, these feminists from the 50s through the 70s, I think most college graduates, um, including men and women who identify as feminists, would not know who those women were. Um, Is that troubling? Um, It's troubling to me. And it's troubling to me because when I've spoken in, in audiences, in college audiences where there are young African-American women, they don't know who Fannie Lou Hamer is. I mean, we don't know our own heroines because we're cut off from them, because we don't value them, because each new movement feels it has to reinvent itself and has to slough off its, uh, its past when, in fact, we should integrate and we should stand on the shoulders of and be taller because of it. Uh, so I, I I wish that we were wiser about honoring our, our foremothers. I know that when I was a child and I learned about the suffrage movement, it was probably one page in my history book, if that. And there was probably a picture of two very homely women, Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton. And I would probably said to myself, who wants to be that? You know, and people we disavow the heroes of the past. We want to move on. We want new heroes. But um, the recent attention that was paid to the passage of the of the suffrage amendment, the right to vote, I mean, we cherish that now that we lost the right to control our own bodies. So we had better pay attention to the past as well as the future. Letty Cotton Bogerman, author of Deborah Golda and Me and about a dozen other books and Shonda, A Memoir of Shame and Secrecy. Um, I hope you'll come back. Thank you for being our Jew of the Week. Oh, what an honor. Can I put it on my CV? Many people have. Mazel tovs. Liel, do you have a mazel tov this week? You know, I have a I have a mazel tov slash, may his memory be a blessing, slash an invitation. This week marks, it's so hard to believe that it's already been two years, but it's a two-year anniversary of the passing of my beloved teacher and beloved guest on, on Unorthodox, Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs. His yurtzeit, or the commemoration of his passing, is this Sunday and Monday, November 13th and 14th. And his family is sponsoring an international day of learning in which, you know, you could come together, really read some of the amazing things that he wrote and listen to some of his, you know, really stunningly insightful sermons. And let me tell you, I had the opportunity to listen to them again recently, and they just get more and more relevant with every year that passes and so beautiful and so necessary right now, especially when so many of us are in, you know, a state of, of, of despair. So register for this thing. Join me and, and so many other people all around the world for the Rabbi Jonathan Sachs uh, Day of Learning. You could do it by going to rabbisachs.org slash yurtzeit. That's rabbi, S-A-C-K-S dot org slash Y-A-H-R-Z-E-I-T. Um, and may his memory be a blessing to us all. Leo, I also have some Mazel Tovs this week uh, to the fine people of Toronto's Beth Emmett-based Yehuda Synagogue, who had me up over the weekend for a couple talks. It was uh, it was great to go north of the border. Um, I was hosted by people like uh, the redoubtable Bruce Martin, the fabulous Candace Vogel, the extraordinary Shelley Markell, Cantor Audrey, who had been at our show at Hebrew College years ago, and the whole gang. And they 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 gifted me a Roots sweatshirt. You know, Roots is sort of 
the Gap, the J Crew, the Under Armour of Canada. It's their it's their number one uh, athleisure and athletic brand. I remember in college you could spot the Canadians walking around the campus because they had sweatshirts that said Roots or sweatpants, and I've never owned one. I never felt entitled because you're kind of fronting as a Canadian, and now I have one. I have a zip up maroon Roots sweatshirt. Anyway, it's a wonderful community. They're a learning community. They're a, a passionate community. And I had a great time up there. So Mazel Tov to all of the Toronto Jews, but especially those of Beth Emmeth base Yehuda. Stephanie, do you want to take us out on a Mazel Tov? Yes. I just really want to give a major shout out to everyone who joined us last Thursday night at B'nai Shalom in West Orange, New Jersey for our live show. Something happened on the way that I think heightened the meaning of it for all of us. As we were getting ready to leave to go to the show, the FBI issued an alert that there was a credible threat to synagogues in New Jersey. That is a terrifying thing to see. And we weren't really sure what was going to happen, right? The show was still on. There was, was going to be a ton of extra security there. People were told they couldn't bring any bags in. There were the, the precautions that sadly are not so unusual for, for the Jewish community today. And I really just want to thank every single person who showed up to that show because we had a big crowd, you know, people who are not going to sit at home and people who are going to actually show up and be in a Jewish space, be proudly Jewish and to say, we appreciate the security measures that are being taken. We're sadly, you know, not surprised by them, right? The the presence of, of, of security at synagogue is sadly not something that that is new to us. And I'm just so grateful that we were able to share a, a moment of just loving being Jewish and laughing and being together at in, in a time that was sort of a heightened and weird and scary moment. And so to celebrate that amazing show and that community, we are going to play you the mazels, the audience mazel tubs from our live show at B'nai Shalom in West Orange, New Jersey. I'm Miriam Garden, and um, my mazel tovs are for my parents, Joe and Bobby Lewis, and my in-laws, Joy and Herschel Garden, all from Detroit, who are all celebrating their 50th anniversaries this year. Orit Kastner, and I want to say Mazal Tov to my husband and myself for our 34th anniversary this coming Sunday. And to Lou Stone, who is your mensch, who is my daughter's future father-in-law. So I feel honored. Hi, Paula Tauger. Um, so my Mazel Tov is for the Desert Dogs, a.k.a. 15 members of Congregation B'nai Israel in the next town, Milburn, who are currently in Israel, bike riding from Jerusalem to Eilat to benefit the Chazon and the Arava Institute. Um, so they're there now. We're very proud of them, along with our rabbi, Ari Eisenberg, who flew over to be with them for Shabbat tomorrow. Hello, my name is Fran Gleishen, and my Mazal Tov is to my daughter, Megan, who just became a commander in the Israel Defense Forces. Yes, okay. Hello, my name is Steve Burkett. I'm Donna Burkett. And my Mazal Tov is for my two adult children, Jackie and Randall, who have uh, grown up in a, in a very nice way and have been a pride and joy to both of us and their families, and that they have also become both financially independent and, and, that, and that is a wonderful thing because I just think we're very, just very lucky to have that in our lives. And by the way, if you want to hear your community's Mazel Tovs on the air, you can invite us to your town, your city, your synagogue, your JCC. Send us an email at tsinger at tabletmag.com. 
Unorthodox is a production of Tablet Studios. The show is hosted by me, Mark Oppenheimer, along with Stephanie Butnick and Leah Leibowitz. We're produced and edited by Josh Cross, Robert Scaramuccia, Quinn Waller, and Ellie Blyer. Our team includes Courtney Hazlett, Tanya Singer, Sarah Fredman, Ader Jerome Rusquet, and Sam Hacker. Please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. The episode art is by Esther Werdiker. Theme music is by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. And mailbox name is by Steve Barton. If you want to send us snail mail, we're at P.O. Box 20079, New York, New York, 13001. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Benjamin A. Sharp at the Reform Temple of Rockland in Nyack, New York. And we come to you from the crisp, pumpkin-scented autumn air of Tablet Studios. Shalom, friends. Shalom, friends.